Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated, and we're going to be back in Luke chapter 4 today. I warned you last week that we're going to be spending the next four weeks, well, three weeks now, uh, in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, studying the, the temptation of Jesus. So quick summary of last week, in case you weren't here, uh, that, we are, that we are looking at the period of time in Jesus' life after his baptism. He was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, out into the desert, to be tempted by Satan himself. And the reason that we're looking at this is to understand how uh, how Jesus was tempted and how he resisted that temptation, to understand as well what, what Jesus has done for us and how also we are tempted in our lives and how we can bear up under it as well. Because the way that Jesus was tempted is very much the same way that we are tempted today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians He says, we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. And the reason for that is because Satan's been acting the same way for thousands of years. Uh, And so when we can study what he's done in the past, we can learn what he's doing to us now as well. Key point that I just want to remind you about last week, because uh, it is, uh, this is, I think, a place of misunderstanding about temptation that, that, uh, that derails us early on, is that temptation is not sin, right? Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, the scripture tells us, yet did not sin. And the reason that is important is because temptation leads to sin, but oftentimes in our lives, when we understand just the guilt of temptation, then we stop resisting at that point. We're like, well, might as well just go the whole way if we've already sinned in our temptation. And I want to encourage you over the next few weeks through this text to be able to say, don't give up too soon. Temptation is not sin, and temptation will come and can be resisted. Okay, so this week we're going to start talking specifically about one of the strategies that Satan used to, uh, to, to tempt Jesus. We're going to call it the hungers of the flesh. We'll explain what that means in a minute. So Luke chapter 4. Verse 1, it says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. I don't think I need to explain that. He didn't eat for 40 days, and he was hungry, right? Uh, Who tells you that the Bible is hard to understand? I think it's pretty easy right there. He didn't eat for 40 days. He was hungry, and the devil said to him, if you, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. <clears throat> so, he ate nothing for 40 days. Uh, this, is, this, is in, this is an important fact because it reveals two things to us. One, uh, there's an implication about the, about the incarnation. That when, when God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he shared our very primal need. He was hungry. God, God in heaven doesn't get hungry, uh, but God incarnate does. And this is important because he, he did, as a human being, all of the things that we do. 
except sin. That Jesus was not was not special in the sense that he was a that he was somehow a superhuman. He was fully and completely human, just as we are. The incarnation is scandalous because the holy God of all of the universe condescended to become one of us to the very fact that he had to eat food, that he used the bathroom. That's scandalous that God would have to do that. Jesus was like us in every way, tempted in every way. Jesus had a sexuality. What Can you say that from the pulpit? He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, friends. Like the depth of the incarnation should make us go, that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Yes, it should. Because this is the breadth and the depth and the beauty of what the incarnation is, that God became exactly like us in Jesus. So Jesus knows what it means to be tempted, knows what it means to have urges like hunger, knows what it means to not have eaten for 40 days. And I don't know if your wife is like mine, but it's bad when I just make her skip lunch for a little bit. I have to make sure I have to feed her because she gets angry. Right? I'm like, this is, this is important. If you don't know this about Karen, this is like some people can go a long time without eating. If you don't know this about Karen, feed her regularly. Um, it was, that came in the instruction manual. When I married her, her mom was like, feed her or it's going to go bad. Uh, and so, so Jesus, 40 days, hasn't eaten. Probably grumpy. Low blood sugar, right? Yes, that's right. God could have low blood sugar because of the incarnation. And so that's one of the implications we hear, see here, too. We're not going to dwell in for a long time. But um, that what we do with our bodies affects our spiritual health. How much sleep you're getting, what you're filling your mind with, that true crime podcast that you cannot stop listening to, and then you're grumpy afterwards, I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Because you just listen to hours and hours of murder. Right, that'll have an effect on you. How much sleep you're getting, what kind of food you are eating, what we fill ourselves with makes a difference in our lives of faith. Just as it does Jesus here too as well. But even though we have these urges, these hungers of the flesh, and we can see easily how Satan could start to move into that space and start to tempt us there, Satan is even smarter than that because he doesn't begin simply with our hungers. There's something deeper and more insidious that he does. Watch what happens here with Christ. He doesn't just start with, hey, you're hungry, eat some bread. He says, if you are the son of God, before he gets to the hunger, he gets to the identity of Christ. If you are the son of God. Now, why is this phrase so important? Well, Jesus has just come from his baptism. Okay, I mean, his hair is still wet, right? He just has come from his baptism. If you, if you have your Bibles, move back to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And, he was, and, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Satan starts his temptation. If you are 
the Son of God. You hear what he did here? He didn't just say, hey, you're hungry, eat some bread. He stepped back and said, let's talk about your identity. Is the things that God is saying to you, is this real? Is that really who you are? And this is bigger than simply just the parenthood of Jesus. Jesus' baptism here, this moment when, when, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him, when the voice of God the Father was, was, uh, was spoken over him as well, we have in this moment one of the only times in the Scripture when all three persons of the Trinity are together here in, uh, in the baptism of Christ. And the message that they said to him is, you are my son. Now, this is, this is a culmination, actually, of thousands of years of history when, when God says, you are my son. Because in Jesus' baptism, it is showing the connection here between humankind, whom Jesus is a part of, and God himself, and, and how those two bodies interact with one another. You see, there are multiple places, many places in the Old Testament, where God calls Israel, his people, calls them his sons. Before Israel was even called Israel, they were called the children of Abraham, through whom God had worked to create a people. Abraham's name is the father of many nations. In Exodus, Moses says to Pharaoh, this says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And God demonstrated his his fatherhood over this son by leading Israel through the Red Sea to rescue them, to which the Apostle Paul later on in 1 Corinthians 10 says that this is one of the places where Israel was baptized as they are led through the water. Then Israel, after their baptism, they start to reject the fatherhood of God. They grumbled against Him. They make idols against Him. They said that Egypt was better. They started chasing after other gods besides Him. And then they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years because of their rejection of God's fatherhood. And then God was still faithful to them. And to bring them to the land of promise, to bring them to the land where they would flourish, he brings them to a river, the Jordan River. And they are brought into the promised land by passing through the waters of the Jordan, out from oppression in Egypt through the waters, into the land of promise through the waters. They're led at this point by Joshua, who has taken over from Moses at this point, and they're given the command to go into the land, to face their enemies in the land that that they are to take possession of, and that they're to run those enemies of God out of that land. And they do a little bit, but then they get lazy, and they don't run everyone out of that land. And ultimately what happens is that the influence of the people who are still there begin to shape Israel and begin to lead them again away from God. And the whole story of the the rest of the Old Testament is God sending prophets back to Israel and saying, "Come, come back to me. And then they beat up the prophets and sometimes they listen a little bit, but not usually. Um, And then they're still chasing after other gods and there's enemies that attack them. This is the whole story of the Old Testament is dealing with the fact that they have not defeated their enemies. Now, Jesus is in the same water 
God has just called him my son, just like he called Israel his son. Jesus is representing all of humankind here as he goes into the water and he comes out. Now, the call is for Jesus, whose name in Hebrew is Joshua, to face the enemy of God. But not just the people who are in the land. No, no, no. Our great enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Jesus comes out of the water just like, just like Israel did, now with an enemy in front of him. I've been to the traditional site of Jesus' baptism at the Jordan. And when you, when, you're, when you come out of the little park that's there, the little, uh, the little um, uh, buildings and things like that that they have set up, and you're driving away, one of the first things that you see across, across a plain is Jericho. If you know the story of the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel, when they came out of the Jordan, one of the first things they had to do was defeat the city of Jericho. This is where they walked around it for seven, seven times and blew their trumpets and the walls fell down, right? So you can still see it today. You come up out of the Jordan and you come up over to the other side and you see your enemies in front of you. And here Jesus is now representing all of us. And he's gone into the wilderness and his enemy has said, are you really the son of God? Big cosmic universal moment here, like big, big moment in history because Israel has failed. Will the Son of God, will he fail as well? Will he give in to temptation? Will he, will he begin to follow other ways besides the ways of God? If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Satan is contradicting all of the truths of the scripture, all of the workings of God up to this point that has made Jesus who he is and why he is important. And this is the same thing that he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did he really say you shouldn't eat of this fruit? He calls into question the story of God's creation and redemption of the world. That's what's happening here in this Short little statement. Are you really the son of God? And if you are, then go ahead and turn these rocks into bread. Are you really his son? Are you truly beloved? Is he really well pleased with you? Does he really save? Maybe you should prove it. Prove it. Turn these rocks into bread. And so Jesus gives his response, gives us an understanding of the, of the huge moment that is here, because Jesus responds like by this. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Okay, that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4. So let me, let, me, let me read you a little bit more of the context of what Jesus just laid out for Satan, because Satan kind of like, like you know, threw a punch at him, and Jesus went, Whoa! You know, like he just sort of blocked the punch with the scripture, uh, the, and and so he's he's battling the truth here. And so, so Deuteronomy chapter eight says this: it's it's Moses's last instruction, some of jo Moses's last instructions to Israel before they go into the land and go into the place where they're going to have to to conquest and and push the people there out, the enemies of God out. And he says this. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. 
And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the, in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you. Listen, this is, he's talking about Israel and how God has dealt with Israel. And he said is, that God has tested you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Isn't that exactly what Satan is tempting with Jesus here as well? And Moses says, then he humbled you and let, your, and let you hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what he just said there, let me, let me summarize that for you. What he just said there is that, is that the whole reason for Israel being in the wilderness was so that God could know their hearts and whether Israel is going to follow his commands and trust him as father or not, and that you might know that man does not live on bread alone. It's not just about the bread that you can make, the things that you can do, how you can feed yourself, but you live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That, that the truth of God, that his that his commands, that his way of understanding the world, seeing the world, acting in the world, believing in the world, is just as important as food itself for your life and flourishing. And so when Satan says, go ahead, make these stones bread, Jesus answered him by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And what he's saying there is just as Israel was tested to see if their heart would follow God. Jesus said, yes, I'm hungry, but I have a greater affection. I have a greater affection than bread. I have an affection for God. And it's him who I'm going to follow before the hunger of my flesh. He succeeded where Israel failed. He succeeds where we fail so that he can be in a place of redemption. Israel, when they were hungry, turned to God and said, are you even there? And why did you even lead us out here? They said great things like, it was so great in Egypt, <laughs> that place where they were punished and oppressed and beaten, right? Um, and that, that, that where, where Egypt would kill their children. They're like, it's so much better there than it is here. They let their circumstance determine their faith and their understanding in God, rather than letting their belief in God determine how they understand their circumstances. And Jesus here is doing the exact opposite. He's saying, the fact that I'm hungry, the fact that I'm even suffering here, does not prove that God does not love me. And so that my hunger of my flesh is not what I, where I find my truth. The urges of my heart or not where I find my truth. The hunger in my belly is not where I find my truth. Where I find my truth is in the reality that God has given to us in his word. This, friends, as Jesus has been tempted in this way and resisted in this way, is the same way that we are tempted and can resist in our own lives. Temptation begins with your identity. Who are you? As we said last week, this is not just about behavior management. This is not just about, stop sinning, follow the rules. This is about a change in our hearts. This is about changing the source of our actions and behaviors. 
The reason that Jesus didn't just take it upon himself to, to make bread for himself is because he understood in his heart who he truly was and is and what he was about. If we lose that understanding of who we are, then our behaviors are up to our situation or what we learn just from the world or some other truth. You say, Dan, I, I, I hear you, what, what you're saying, but my identity is not the same as Jesus. Like I, the, the, the fate of the world doesn't rest on my shoulders. I don't represent all of humankind uh, in the same way that, that Jesus did. I, I'm not necessarily seeing the connection here, and maybe the stakes are not quite as high. I disagree with you. No, you're not Jesus. But if you know Christ, you are a beloved son or daughter of God, adopted as his child, forgiven, loved, and free. You have nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing oppresses you, nothing controls you, nothing can pluck you from the hand of God. You are more than a conqueror over sin, the scripture says. Nothing anyone has done to you can take that away, and nothing you do and achieve can make that any more true. Romans 8.38 says, I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the identity that we operate out of, living by the word of God, that if God has changed us from darkness to light, from sinful and separated to forgiven and into family, if in order to do so, he has become one of us and taken our own sin and shame upon himself, if he has done all of that and that our identity now is to be forgiven, loved, and free child of God, then that should shape the way that we see the world and the way that we act within the world. We operate out of the truth of the gospel. And so friends, when you sit here and we talk about sin, and we read the Ten Commandments like we did earlier, and, and we talk about temptation, and you go, gosh, <clears throat> I hope no one else ever finds out the things that I'm tempted by or that I actually give in to. That, that it makes you want to be secretive, that it makes you want to turn inward, and you're going, I, I, I've tried to stop these things, and I can't stop these things. The change doesn't need to be first in our behavior. It needs to be first in our very heart. And it's Jesus that does that. And when our heart is changed, then our behavior changes. And our behavior is simply an indicator of the truth of our heart. It's Jesus who can heal. It's Jesus who can forgive. It's Jesus who receives your repentance. It's Jesus who makes you new. And it's Jesus who can heal your actions and the actions that others have done to you to remove your shame. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's what we operate out of. And nothing can pluck us from his hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so therefore, all of the other things that we are struggling through, although meaningful, are not where we get our identity and our truth or our faith and our understanding from. It is from the gospel 
of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan would tempt you not simply by dangling urges in front of you, but by first calling your identity and all of this truth into question, then suggesting that you need something more to make you whole, important, fulfilled, and joyful. If you are the son of God, then eat. That's going to make you feel good. That's what you need. You need something more than just the title of son of God. You need to fill your stomach. You need more. Satan would say to you, if God made you and he made you to know the truth, then your hunger tells you what you should pursue. Make some bread. Make some bread. More success, then you'll feel full. More sex, then you'll feel fulfilled. More power, more pleasure. A bigger house, a better job, more money. Make some bread. And listen, just like bread, these can all be good things. Success in your profession is not bad. It can be quite good and quite godly. I encourage you to have success in your profession. Sex is a good thing. In fact, God created that. He gave that to us as a gift. It's not bad to make money. You can, you can use it to be generous. Your house can be a place of safety and hospitality. All of these things can be good things. When we begin with our identity in God, then these things can be used for the glory of God and for the service of others. And if we lose them, we don't lose our identity because that's found in God. So these things don't become the gods in our lives. But if we pursue these things as part of who we are and our identity, then they become our gods and we pursue them for our own glory using our own methods at the expense of others. And so we pursue success and money without integrity while we tear down those who would get in our way and take advantage of those that we can. Sex becomes about power and lust and is pursued outside of God's design between man and woman in marriage. And in the end, it brings about separation instead of devotion. We hoard money at the expense of generosity. Our houses become status symbols that we spend too much money on to show how better we are, we are than others rather than to welcome them into our lives. He takes something innocuous like a house, like bread, and turns it into temptation for sin for our own glory that results in brokenness and fear. And you're, you're listening, you're going, Dan, actually, I don't really want any of those things you just said. None of them, really, like none of them. All I want is just security. I just want to be safe. I just, I, just want to, I, just want, I just want the things that I want and just to be safe and secure. And the problem is, is that that in itself becomes an idol. And that we try everything in our own power to make those stones become bread so that we can make our own security. And then what we really are is anxious all the time. Because we only trust in our own ability to make bread out of stone. We only trust in our, in our own hungers. And we say, what if? What if I lose these things? What if something happens to my child? What if something happens to my house? What if something happens to my job? What if something happens? And we trust in our own ability to hold it together. And you and I cannot hold the universe together. And we sit under that blanket of anxiety and fear all the time. And it's destructive. And that's simply Satan saying to you, Security is good. Peace is good. Make it for yourself. Turn these stones into bread. 
Jesus says to us, no, where we find our security is in God. Where we find our peace is in God. Where we find our provision is in God. And nothing can take us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the word of God. And when we can start to believe that and live into that, even if we haven't eaten for 40 days, we can still know that sense of wholeness and joy and peace that Jesus knows in this situation. It is a fundamental shift in our lives to trust God fully and deeply and find our identity in him. These false gods can't promise to never let you down, and so we live in fear of losing them or that they will betray us. God has specifically said that he will never leave us or forsake us. Satan is subtle. Feed yourself, then you will be full, but it is empty bread. It's quick carbohydrates. You burn those up, man, and they're, uh, you get a little high, and then it's gone. This is the great lie of our world that the hungers of our flesh teach a better truth than the word of God. But the word of God teaches us that if we pursue God and his ways, that we will find the true joy and fulfillment that we are after. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, you might know that one. He wrote Mere Christianity, Anglican author. He also wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. And this is a fantastic book. If you haven't ever read Screwtape Letters, I encourage you to go out and get it during Lent. It's a really fantastic book to read during Lent. The whole premise of the story, it's an allegory. Um, when, and he's, there is a senior tempter demon, right, who's raising up his nephew, uh, who's a new, who's learning how to tempt people for the first time. And so it's a series of letters that his uncle is writing to him. Uh, and so one of the things that his uncle writes to this, to this younger demon as he's learning how to tempt somebody, it says this. It says, when God talks of them losing themselves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all of their personality and boasts, I'm afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Right? Jesus said things you have to die to live. Whoever, whoever loses his life for me will, will save it. This is the opposite of what Satan is saying. He says you have to make everything happen in your own life. But our truth is a truth of grace. But this is more, about, more than just about our own individual flourishing. This is more than just about you not having anxiety, which we'd hope for. And we want the peace that passes all understanding to guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We want that for you. In case we, we pray that every Sunday. But it's more than just our own individual lives. What is at stake here is that the way of Christ, his truth, his word, his ways, are what will bring healing to the broken world that we live in. As he redeems each one of us, he calls us to live a life in his spirit that will bring about the work of his kingdom and the healing of the nations to continue the redemption that Christ has begun. And so our own individual temptation, you say, well, Christ's temptation was a big deal because the world was at stake. I say that your temptation is significant because the world is at stake. Because he's calling you to, re- to be redeemed. He's calling you to pursue the ways of Christ. And the ways of Christ bring about healing to the world. Satan would have you 
sit under temptation and eat those rocks so that you can't bring others into the knowledge and love of Jesus, so that you can't enter into the broken systems of our world and correct them, that you can't bring healing to others. So what is at stake in your temptation is our world. So the temptation is to believe that the hungers of your flesh determine who you are, what you should believe, and how you should act. And the truth is that the word of God is what brings about true flourishing. And so how do you resist? You trust. You throw yourself on the grace of Jesus. You call for his mercy. When we read the Ten Commandments today, that's not a, that's not a call to simply, hey, hey, are you doing this? Stand up. Start. Why are you not doing these things? Because what follows right after that is what we call the Kyrie when we say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We need mercy because we can't do all of those, these things without his grace. But having grace then doesn't mean that we just say, oh, I'm forgiven, so I can keep on sinning and keep on pursuing these things. And as I do, the grace of Christ will increase. This is dealt with actually quite specifically in the New Testament, where people say, oh, right, I have grace. And so here's the logic. I sin more. Jesus gives more grace. Jesus is better. Therefore, I should sin more. Right? Thank you, Satan. No, that is not how that works at, at all. Paul says specifically, by all means, no. What we should be doing is living into this identity of Christ by his grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, and, and warring and rebelling against the things that would tear you down, your family down, and this world down, the destructive ways of Satan's sin and death. So trust, read the Word of God, feast on the Word of God, spend time in the Word of God. This is not just simply a, have you had your quiet time today? This is about survival, about knowing what is true and what is real and what is not, knowing what is the voice of God and what is not. You have to be in His Word. You have to be in it on your own. You have to be in it. We offer classes on Wednesdays during our connections time. There's plenty of ways for you to get engaged where we can help you learn how and how to be in, uh, how to be in the Word of God. You must, as a Christian, in order to understand the Word in any way, is to be in it and to feast on it. Because the other 99.9% .9 of your time, you're being influenced by other truths. Live the word in community. Don't do this alone. As we said yesterday, Jesus was tempted most heartily when he was separated from everyone else out in the desert. Engage in community. Press into relationships. One of the opposites of temptation is worship. Worship who God has made you and what he has done for you. Worship his grace and his mercy. Worship his gospel that, that we worship God in all of these things, when we sing, when we say the liturgy, when we come to the table, when we worship, we are saying you are the one who is deserving of honor, not me, but you, not the things of this world, but you, and it forms us and shapes us so we learn how not to pursue the hungers of our flesh, but the glory of God. And how else do you resist this, this temptation? Eat at this table. Come forward and See the visible gospel, that Jesus' body has been broken for you, and his blood has been poured for you, and that he invites you to his family table. Be strengthened by his word, by his sacrament, by his spirit, and the community with which you, with, within which you share it. And so I close with this. 
I want you to notice that after he resisted Satan in this way, he was still hungry. His hunger didn't go away. And when you resist Satan, the urges will sometimes still be there. And so we must generate, we must pursue, we must receive a greater affection than, than what we have for the hungers of our stomach and our flesh. That our love for God and our dedication to him and our loyalty to him and our faith in him is greater even than the urges of our own flesh. And we need that as a gift from Christ himself. And so we call out for mercy. We call out for strength. But don't be shocked when the hunger is still there. God is calling your heart to love something even deeper than how you struggle. To love something even greater than the fulfillment of your own needs is the God who will actually fulfill them all for eternity. So, may we be mindful of the schemes of the evil one, and may we stand strong in the face of temptation through the power of Christ, for his glory, for the sake of our own flourishing, and for the sake of the world. Pray with me. Father, we live in a fallen world. You know this more than we do. We live in a world that teaches us false truths, that convinces us that, that the ways of the world and the ways that are contrary to you are actually better, will actually bring about life, will actually bring about joy. Help us, Lord, to, to have a hunger for you. Where we have given into temptation and become subject to evil and death, where we have, where we have where we have sinned and are sinning and are still in notorious sin in our lives right now, Lord, help us not to hear the shame of Satan that is pressing us down, but the conviction of the Lord that is calling us out, that is calling us up to repent and to receive forgiveness. Let us trust that you are a God of grace and mercy, that, is, that your grace is greater than our sin, that your Holy Spirit is greater than our pull towards temptation. Lord, give us hope in the midst of our sin. Give us, give us forgiveness in the midst of our sin. And Lord, where we have turned the urges of our flesh into the gods that rule us, let us cast off those idols and turn to you. To hear your word afresh. To receive your gospel anew. To put away our anxiety and our shame under, under the cover of your glory and your grace. And let us, Lord, as we know this truth and this freedom, go out from this place to correct what is broken, to heal what is ripped, to, to, to mend what is torn, to bring about your redemption in this world. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.